actually what this time has given us is space to breathe, to stretch our imagination. So welcome to another episode of What Could Possibly Go Right, where we ask cultural scouts in a variety of fields to put on their headlamps and tell us what they see in the murky future. Normal is over, next is a mystery, so now what? Today I'm speaking with Rob Hopkins. Rob is a co-founder of Transition Town Totness and Transition Network and the author of, of From What Is to What If, The Power of Just Doing Stuff, and also the Transition Handbook and the Transition Companion. In 2012, he was voted one of the Independent's top 100 environmentalists and was on Nesta and the Observer's List of Britain's 50 New Radicals. So Rob, you feel like um, a brother of another mother. Your book, What If, asks us to feed our imagination as almost the missing link to the future we want. And um, so I wanna read you a stanza of a visionary poem I wrote for a turn of the millennium book. Uh, the poem is called, Could We Be Happy? This is the last stanza. We will all have enough. We will all have hope even the poor, poor who didn't choose to be poor. Our imagination will be on fire with what if, as though no one told us to forget it and fail gracefully. No life will be capped with despair, no child unloved and crying naked and dirty. Even the rich will want to live in such a world, will want to come into the street and sing and drink beer. And the guards and the prisoners will tell stories about childhood until they become brothers. And that tight place in our chests where our hearts are in hiding will soften and melt and we will finally be free. So 20 years later, here we are in time of pandemic, fragility of institutions that support our lives, a long overdue racial justice uprising. And I'm not asking for visions of what could be, but clear seeing of what is right in front of us. So I give this to you to go where you will in our 15 uninterrupted minutes of Rob Hopkins. So Rob, what could possibly go right? Well, the first thing I have to say is, is I think that uh, I'm ever so jealous that I didn't think of what could possibly go right. I just think that's just such a beautiful, beautiful turn of phrase, really. My congratulations and, and slight envy that you got there first. So I'm delighted with that and delighted to appear on this. So thank you for inviting me. Um, well, I guess my work for the last couple of years has, has really been looking at this question of imagination and that poem you wrote is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, because it feels to me like, like it's it, it's the, it's the missing piece of the puzzle that we just don't talk about very often. You know, I, I said something in the book, like you know, we understand that when a if we, if a population doesn't eat a good enough diet, we see a rise in preventable illnesses. We recognise that if a society's education system isn't any good, then it's unable to reach its potential. But it feels like just slightly sort of out of eye shot, kind of over here this sort of gradual decline, demise of the imagination is going on and nobody's really spotting it or saying anything. And at the time when we, when, when our survival depends on our ability to fundamentally reimagine and rebuild pretty much everything, given the scale and the urgency of the climate crisis, um, 
it's the worst possible time to have that. And I just was reading this today, a book called The Climate Leviathan, however you say that word, Leviathan, uh, by Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann. And there's a little bit where they say, the political problems we face cannot be fixed by simply delivering science to the masses. If good climate data and models were all that were needed to address climate change, we would have seen a political response in the 1980s. Our challenge is closer to a crisis of imagination and ideology. People do not change their conception of the world just because they are presented with new data. And I, I found myself, I kept reading people like Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben, who, this phrase kept coming up all the time, the failure of the, climate change is a failure of the imagination. And it really got under my skin and kind of stayed with me, this question of well, why are we having a failure of the imagination at this particular time? And I've come to think that actually what we have created in the last 30 years or so has been a kind of a, a perfect storm of conditions that are reducing our imagination. We know that trauma and anxiety and stress and loneliness and isolation and colonization and systemic racism and social exclusion can cause the imagination to shrink. That, that, that trauma affects the part of the brain where our imagination fires from it and causes it to shrink. And it's this sort of terrifying kind of concept to me that we're entering this time when we fundamentally have to be able to reimagine everything and we're just not up to it. So, um, so I guess for me, what I've seen during, during COVID has been, yes, yeah, so, 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 so there's a thing that myself and a guy called Rob Shorter worked on. He was a lodger of mine and he was studying at Schumacher College and he did his dissertation about the, the book that I was writing, he got an early manuscript of it. And together we created this thing we called the Imagination Sundial, which we published last week on, online, which was a, an attempt to sort of try to nail down what are the conditions that we need to create in order for the human imagination to re-emerge? How, how do we create those conditions? Because we really, really need to, really, really urgently. And the first one of those is space that imagination fundamentally needs space. None of us come up with our most imaginative ideas when we're sitting in front of our laptop with a deadline at eight o'clock that night. You know, Albert Einstein always said his best ideas came when he rode his bike through a forest. And um, so one of the things that, that the COVID has given us is space. Not all of us, but a lot of us who've been dashing around like lunatics for ages have had a pause. And what we saw during that time was this incredible sort of flowering of imaginative stuff, people dressing up as old masters paintings and doing incredible dance routines and playing elaborate tricks on their neighbours and uh, uh, all kinds of extraordinary stuff, really amazing things. And I think there's an exercise that I always do when I do talks where I say we're gonna we're gonna I bought my time machine we're gonna do a bit of time travel and we turn on this time machine we travel forward to 2030 it's not a utopia but it's a 2030 where everything that could possibly have done between now and then was done and people and I've done this with groups of 15 people and I've done it in a hall with 1500 people and it's all pretty much always the same people the main things are the bird song is louder there are more insects uh, the air smells really clean. There are a lot less cars. There's a really strong sense of collective purpose and I can see more food gardens. That, that's pretty much the top six everywhere I do it. And usually up until a few months ago, we do that exercise and then people would walk home going, yeah, that was really nice, but like that's ever going to happen in my lifetime. That's what it's been like for the last couple of months in so many people's lives, living in people who live under airplane flight paths who thought, am I ever going to see the day when there isn't a plane going over our house every minute? 
and sending me emails going, it's just amazing, you know. So, so I, I feel like actually what COVID has done is has given our imagination some space uh, to think about things in a different way. And the really interesting opinion polls, there was an opinion poll the other day in the UK that said only 12% of people want things to go back to how they were before. Uh, and you see the same opinion polls in France, you've just seen this massive uh, green surge in, in, in the local elections all across France. And a lot of that narrative was about bounce forward to something better. So I guess what I'm looking at in terms of, in terms of COVID is how we now uh how we now put the kind of if if we've seen during covid this kind of oh, breathing in of the imagination this sort of oh some space for it finally and people starting to look around and so many people using that time to start a food garden the amount of people i know who are growing food for the first time this year the number of people who are the sales of bicycles, bicycle shops nearly ran out of bicycles uh, in parts of the UK. You know, all of that is a kind of collective. And actually what we see, certainly in the UK at least, not the same in other places, but in the UK with our utterly imagination bereft government is the only thing they can think of is we have to go back to kind of doing things how they were before. But they're completely out of step with where most people are at, according to the polls. People are wanting something really different. Um, you know, you see, you, you see in other countries now where, where, where mayors, and actually even here, mayors of cities are saying, well, we've got really used to not having so many cars, we're going to keep it like that. Milan are putting in 22 miles of new bike paths, uh, this idea of taking back streets. And then again, you see when, when communities experience taking back streets from, from, from traffic, we would be led to believe that when you, sh when you get the cars out of a street, what happens is it fills up with weeds and kind of tumbleweed blowing past. Actually what happens is it fills up with children playing, with conversation, with people hanging out, with games, people doing stuff together. So my sense is that, that actually what this time has given us is space to breathe, to stretch our imagination. I always like to talk about how the, the part of the brain the imagination fires from is called the hippocampus. And uh, I always say to people, you know, we need to be able to turn our cities into being a campus for the hippocampus. And, uh, and I feel like that's what we've had, you know. And, and so the, the question is the degree to which we can, we can hang on to it and we can build off it. And so many of the things that we've been talking about in transition for so long and putting in place for so long, I feel like a lot of those arguments are much easier than they were before. The idea that we need to build really resilient local food networks have usually been debates that have been the kind of terrain of the progressive left, I guess, mostly. I think when we emerge from, from this and people have really got a sense of the panic buying and the lack of food resilience during this time, that actually there will be a big, um, it'll be much easier to do a lot of that stuff. So I feel like we, we're emerging into a time where a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in transition and kind of modeled in transition and other movements around local food and the kind of things you're talking about um, will be much easier. And I feel like a lot of people, myself included, I don't feel like I emerge from the lockdown as the same person I went in as, actually. It's been quite a profound, extraordinary thing, actually, having that space and that room to breathe. And then, as you mentioned, you know, the the Black Lives Matter revolution happening in the middle of it and the kind of, um, that kind of commitment to say, I need to do this work as a, as a white person of privilege, I need to do this work and I need to 
read the right i need to do the reading and i need to speak to people and i need to watch the right things and that's been uh a really profound sort of exercise as well and and, and i and i feel like yeah i feel like i emerged from this a very different person than i went in than i went into it as actually and i feel like a lot of people feel that and a lot of people who i who i'm in touch with are really feeling a sense of um you know now we now we need to scale these things up but then don't we always feel like that i don't know am i just talking and talking am i talking too long <laughs> that was no your idea. assignment to talk and talk and talk <laughs> if you want to take a pause i could ask a question <laughs> yeah go and ask me a question or i'll just yeah so i'd love to i i feel the same i've been noticing that for all my griping about the loss of street life the loss of, I mean, my creativity goes up exponentially in conversation. You know, it's just like, I, I, you know, the loss of like my dance community and my, you know, the beach, you know, it's just like I've been griping and I have a lot of frightened friends who don't want me to, <laughs> who aren't willing to do what I want to do. But um, I've noticed for myself that there is a deepening of soul that is sort of longed for, but never had space. So I would say that for myself, that it's something like that. Um, and so would you put some words on what are you noticing in you that is different? Ooh. I'm definitely noticing that I have a limit beyond which Zoom just really starts to do my head in uh which i think a lot of people have i've i mean one of the things for me is is you know i went to art school when i was 18 and then my life has just been so mad i've not really had space to really practice and 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 this i one of the things during this time has really been has i've i've taken the time to go out and draw and make prints and, and do stuff and, and that's been so delicious to kind of reconnect with that with that practice again and and as much as anything because for me when you go out and draw it's that's attention you know we live in a time where our attention spans are just so shot to bits and so distracted in many directions when you're sitting in front of something and drawing it for two or three hours you're just your your attention is there and that's just like absolutely delicious um i think i've i i i, I feel like you know there are people around me in the town where I live who have this whole idea that somehow COVID is all a, has all been a, a kind of some horrendous conspiracy and all this rubbish. You know, I feel like actually it has been the most phenomenal global act of love and solidarity, certainly in my lifetime, possibly in history, actually. I mean, outside of wartime, I guess. You know the the fact that the fact that billions of people were prepared to stay home and shut their social lives down in order to take care of each other is extraordinary. Well, one of the things I read during this time was Rutger Bregman's new book, Hum *Humankind*, where he where he forensically challenges that myth that human beings are fundamentally selfish and destructive and awful and picks all of that science to bits and says no actually what the science says is that we are fundamentally uh, decent and we look after each other and we care for each other the problem is the power structures that we build 
And actually, in my town, I noticed that, um, you know, an incredible flowering of people, even on my, on my street, in my neighborhood, in my town, people really are setting up these incredible networks. And some of those laid really beautifully on top of networks that we built during the transition movement for the last 10, 12, 15 years. You know, the, so some of the food stuff, the transition street stuff that we did, many of those networks then just turned into kind of COVID-19 support networks. So I, 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 I leave it thinking, well, if we leave it, I don't know, it's lifting slowly, but it may well just come back again with a sense that that the, the belief, that belief that has underpinned the transition movement from the beginning, that any solutions will start with us and they will start with, with communities and they will start with people working together and they will start with a with a sense of, of, of solidarity and mutual support was really a good hunch, actually. <laughs> and, and, and that actually we've seen during this crisis that that really has come into its own, I think. Mm. So I've, I've, I've felt... Um, although I haven't seen a lot of people in person and, and you know, anybody who knows my town of, of Totnes will know that actually the idea of Totnes without people hugging has been a very, very strange thing that I never imagined I would ever see. Um, I've, I've, I feel like now the key piece is going to be that what comes after it is going to be a lot more challenging because what comes after it is going to be possibly the worst recession uh, since the 1930s, possibly worse than the 1930s, particularly here because it's going to be on top of Brexit, which was a complete car crash to start with. And we're going to see huge levels of unemployment. And uh, and actually this idea that people need to be able to imagine something else, you know, it's just so, this is so totally the moment to be having those conversations and, and they're starting to happen in, in places, but it's just not happening quickly enough. And uh, it's, it's the storytelling piece and the pointing to the good examples and the opening up those kind of what I think of as what if spaces where people can come together to think about how we can do this differently because we can't just keep going back to how, to how we did things before because it's just broken and you just can't keep going round and round trying to make this thing work. It needs fresh thinking, it needs new ideas. And those are there um, but we just have to really scale that thing up and, and work work more closely with with other networks and other people. And, 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 I, and I always try to challenge the thing that I see sometimes in transition and in permaculture movements and stuff where people somehow imagine that it's a great act of solidarity and achievement for the permaculture transition movement to make an alliance with the eco-village network or something. It's like, really, that's, that's not really a great, you know, actually, what, how are you building networks to to, to, to um, networks and, and, and communities of color and, 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 and sort of right-wing organizations and you know where, where's the common ground with them, with our conservative neighbors? How do we find that ground? How do we find that language? Uh, that's that's the, the, the really juicy bit for me. And that, that again really involves us being able to ask what if and to, and to think beyond what's in front of us. Wow, that was perfect. Perfect wind up. Um... Yeah, when you talked about the, I just, but I do, I'm going to add one thing. When you talked about the um, coming economic, the sort of current, actually, you know, what do they say? The collapse is happening. It's just something evenly distributed. Yeah. Um, you know, what came to me is, is that if the neoliberal project is, um, is sort of the, the, 
gum, the, the sort of the, the barriers to being decent human beings. It's like we want to be decent, but we're in structures that really prevent us. That yeah. Perhaps mutual aid is gonna be necessary and, and maybe one of the bottom up things that we discover that we eventually don't wanna let go of. So. Yeah, yeah, and because, because part of that is that, you know, we see governments tend to view communities organizing and doing stuff as something really fundamentally distrustful and, and strange and not a good thing until there's a big, big crisis like Hurricane Sandy or a pandemic. And then they go, oh, isn't it marvelous how, in, <laughs> how, how communities, you know, rally around each other in these times. And Boris Johnson about two weeks into COVID said, actually, there is such a thing as, as, as society. It's like, well, we all knew that, Sunshine. And the fact that you didn't tells us so much about your political, uh, what, right. why you do what you do. So for me, the, the, the thing is though, that we, we, we imagine that communities do all that stuff uh, happily trotting out as volunteers and they just do it all. And government never thinks we need to support this and resource this. But for me, the thing is, as, as community groups, and I, you know, I meet hundreds of community groups going around meeting transition groups all over the place, they do a lot of stuff. And they do it with pretty much no resource and they do it while they're also raising their families and holding a job down and caring for their parents or whatever it is. These movements and these, these things need proper support and resource. And I think one of the things that I hope is that we emerge out of this with, with, with government saying we need to properly support communities because it's a much more effective way of allocating money to making things happen in communities because it has so many other spin-off uh, benefits and you can look at it as being also as being a public health strategy and a mental health strategy and a social cohesion strategy and da, 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 da. fund the community organizations to do stuff uh, and the benefits will just be enormous and it will, will put in place so much more resilience for when something like this happens again. Mm -hmm. Wow well so much so many direct and indirect calls to action here. Um, that's what I feel. It's just, um, it's just like you created all these sort of uh, tracks in the imagination for, you know, where we could step next, any one of these stepping next into any of these paths. Uh, at least will be fun and feed the hippocampus, you know, <laughs> at very least, exactly. and po possibly make a huge difference. So um, thank you so much, Rob, for taking the time and for your very clear and honest reflections. I appreciate it. Thank you, my pleasure. And thank you for coming up with what could possibly go right. I will definitely <laughs> try and drop that into a couple of talks in the future. Mm -hmm.